So if you were, um, if you were one of the ones who, who uh, joined us for the, the chilly and chill evening at the, the, the Tucker's Place on, uh, on Wednesday night, um, you, you will not only have enjoyed some great chilli um, and had a bit of a chill, uh, as, as much as this heat allows, um, but, but you would have heard from, from Jurka and Kira, who are our mission partners in the, the Czech Republic, uh, about how their, their church, their new church plant is going. Um, and I guess it's fair to say that, that they are encouraged by what God is doing, but it's tough. You know, they're, they're, you, you would have heard that they're a tiny church. They're, they're meeting in fairly unsuitable facilities. They're, they're under-resourced. They, they feel very fragile, um, which might make people wonder why it's worth bothering planting a church at all. <laughs> uh, you know, Czech Republic is a very secular uh, country anyway. Seventy um, percent uh, uh, of the, the population there claim no religious affinity at all. I think it's ranked as the, the third most non-religious nation in the world. Um, so is this really a time to plant new churches? Um, or, or is it rather a, a, a time for Christians to kind of, you know, hunker down, as it were, and, and retreat into the existing churches, the, the, the more well-established churches, and kind of maybe wait for more favourable conditions? Um, in other words, can, can the, the gospel really break through now? Can, can it cut it now in, in 21st century Europe? And of course, that's not only a live question for Jörka and Kira uh, in one part of Europe, in, in, the, in the Czech Republic, but it's actually a live question for us here at Grace Church in, in another uh, part of Europe, because uh, over this last little while, we've started thinking and praying, haven't we, about another church plant here, um, here on the island. Uh, we, we've seen that the mission of the, the risen Lord Jesus to his church, Acts 1 verse 8, uh, is to be his witnesses. In, indeed, Christ has sent his spirit to his church at, at Pentecost to empower his church for, for this very purpose. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, Jesus says. It's Holy Spirit power for mission. And a mission that we're not just to do where we already are, but a mission that takes us out from where we already are. In other words, there's an outward trajectory to Christ's mission to us, isn't there? And it doesn't stop until it reaches the ends of the earth. Um, But can that mission to take the gospel out, you know, continually growing and spreading towards the ends of the earth, can that really apply to us, you know, here in, in 21st century Europe now, uh, you know, where biblical Christianity is barely tolerated and often opposed, uh, make, making Christians feel increasingly marginalised, often fearful of, of being able to practice and speak about their faith without being kind of censured for it in some way. Well, what's been really helpful, at least to me, um, about these particular chapters in the book of Acts is that here is where the gospel comes to Europe for the first time. Uh, the, the, the whole book of Acts, uh, uh, of course, uh, sort of charts the growth and the spread of the gospel as the first disciples respond to Christ's mission. Um, and in these chapters, that, that kind of inevitable outward trajectory of the gospel brings them to Europe, where, where they begin to do here what they've been doing right through the book, which is to respond to the risen Christ's mission as God's people proclaim God's word in the power of God's spirit, leading to churches being planted. That's how it happens, isn't it? 
Uh, do you remember last week from the, the first part of chapter 17, we got some insight, didn't we, into the, the method and the message of the gospel preaching that is bringing about this, this spread of the gospel, as we saw Paul simply preaching the gospel by explaining the Bible. That's, that's what he does, isn't it? He just opens up passages of scripture week by week, sometimes day by day, and explains them and reasons from them, verses 2 and 3. Uh, showing and proving from the, the text of the scripture the necessity of the death and the resurrection of the Christ and proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And, and of course, you know, these days, uh, for some people at least, the, the idea that you will grow the church just by preaching the gospel as you explain the Bible, well, that, that's, that's considered, you know, hugely simplistic. And, and so you know, we need some other method or, or, or even for some, we, we need some other message for, for our day and age. But of course, as we've seen, there isn't actually much difference between 21st century Europe and 1st century Europe. You know, we, we saw in chapter 16, didn't we, that Satan's strategies to oppose the gospel are just the same. Whether that's the subtle undermining of the gospel or whether it's the more overt slandering of the gospel and, and its messengers, just the same. Uh, we saw in the first half of chapter 17, actually, European culture is pretty much the same too. Uh, back then, it was proud and progressive and pluralistic. It was multi-ethnic and multi-faith. And yet it was united under a common set of values, the Roman Empire. And so distrustful of, of Christian values. That's what first century Europe was like, but it's what 21st century Europe is like uh, as well, isn't it? So is this a time to plant new Bible churches with all that that involves, all that hardship and struggle? Or is it time to just kind of hunker down in, in the relative comfort of our existing Bible churches? Can, can the gospel really cut through in, in 21st century Europe? Well, I think in this passage, that question really gets tested because here in Athens, the gospel is right in the heartland of kind of intellectual, uh, philosophical, speculation and discussion in, in first century Europe. So, you know, places like Thessalonica and Berea, where, where we've been in the other uh, uh, weeks, you know, Paul there was preaching into the synagogues, wasn't he, to, to people who knew their Bibles. Um, even in Philippi, you know, those people meeting down by the river were going there because it was a place of prayer in, in the absence of a synagogue. So it was, again, largely Jews and, and God-fearers who gathered there. But the people he finds himself reasoning with now, they're way different to that. They're, they're the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the Areopagus. They're the kind of intelligentsia. You know, they're the philosophical elite of the day. So can Paul still adopt the same kind of method and message now? Will, will that cut through in, in his Europe? Will it convert people so that churches can be planted and, and grown? And so can we expect the same? That, that people will come to know Jesus and, and churches established in, in such a place just by uh, uh, keep preaching Christ from the Bible week by week? Can we really expect that? Well, let's find out. We're going to examine Paul's faithfulness and flexibility. Uh, and what I'd love us to do, first of all, look, at, look in verses 16 to 18. Let's see his faithful preaching. Um, where what we'll see here is that there's a, there's a new context for Paul, there's a new culture, but actually the method doesn't change. 
Now, if you remember, if you remember from last week, Paul had been in Thessalonica, um, where the, the Jewish community there had kind of stirred up trouble for him. That's back in verse 5, uh, such that he, he, he sent on to Berea. And then the same Jews, actually, that had hassled him in Thessalonica turned up in Berea as well. They caused even more trouble, verse, verse 13. Uh, and so he, he's packed off again for the coast, verse 14, where he's traveled by himself right down to Athens uh, with instructions, uh, verse 15, for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. So he's on his own. And, and I know he's on a five-city tour here, but you know, in terms of the sightseeing, Maybe Athens would be top of the list, what do you reckon? I reckon it'd be pretty good. World-renowned, of course, as a major city of culture and and architecture. But actually also renowned as a key centre of religion and philosophy. Maybe the key centre of religion and philosophy in the ancient world. You know, guys like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and so on came came from there. Which meant, as, as verse 16 puts it, that the place was chock full of temples and statues to the various Greek and pagan gods that the Greek literally says it's overgrown with them. Um, It it was a seat of of philosophical learning as well, verse 18, with with the two most popular sort of Greek philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism. They They were particularly well represented in the city. And also, look, verse 21, it was a place of great curiosity and openness to to kind of all things new. You know, they, they just love to debate, they love to discuss the, the kind of latest philosophical uh, intellectual ideas. So put yourself in Paul's shoes here, okay? That is going to be pretty intimidating for you, isn't it? You know, um, I wonder, you might find it intimidating to be the only Christian in your class at school or in your place of work. That's quite intimidating, isn't it? Uh, just imagine, though, Arriving in Athens, this global city of learning and philosophy and religion and culture, where you're surrounded by the elites of all those worlds, and you're swimming in their pagan gods and and philosophies, and you're the only Christian. Whoa. That's that's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? Pretty intimidating. I think if I was Paul, I'd be looking forward to Silas and Timothy and a bit of moral support coming my way. I'd be dead keen maybe to keep my head down until they arrived. And then I'd be thinking to myself, what possible impact can the message of a kind of carpenter from rural Palestine who died on a Roman cross have in a place like this? This this intimidating city with this mass of religions and philosophies and learning and culture. You could very easily feel completely overwhelmed, couldn't you? It could overwhelm someone's confidence in the gospel, couldn't it? What, what good is the What impact could the gospel make here? Well, have a look at what impact uh, or what effect this has on Paul. Look in verse 16. Uh, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul looks around at all this and we're not told that he's intimidated. We're told that his spirit was provoked within him. In other words, he's, he's reacting, he's provoked by all the idolatry that's around him. It, it distressed him that, that these people were, this city full of people were so depraved that they were bowing down and honouring idols instead of honouring the true and the living God. Do you see, Paul's, Paul's jealous here for the honour and the name and the, and the reputation of the one true and living God. And so his spirit is provoked 
within him because there's a whole city full of people who've been made in the image of the creator God, but they're not worshipping him as God. But instead, they're bowing down and worshipping idols. So, so what does he do? What's his response to that, that provocation? Well, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Which, friends, you might remember from just from last week is the same thing that he did in Thessalonica and Berea, isn't it? In fact, Luke even uses the same word, doesn't he? Reasoned in order to kind of link us back with that description of his method. Do you remember that description in verses 2 and 4? He reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, uh, and and so on. That's what what he's doing. And also notice that, that as before, he's doing it consecutively. And and not only in the synagogue among the Jews, but he's doing it in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. In other words, his his method is still the same, isn't it? You know, it might be a middle-class businesswoman, Lydia, uh, or or a working-class jailer in Philippi, chapter 16. It it might be a Jew or a God-fearer versed in the scriptures in Thessalonica earlier in chapter 17. It might be a kind of sophisticated intellectual who worships many gods in, in Athens. But whoever it is. It makes no difference to Paul's basic method. He preaches the gospel by consecutively explaining the Bible and and showing how it points to the necessity for the coming of the Christ in the person of Jesus. It's the same method, isn't it? Now, we'll see in a minute that that Paul is certainly paying close attention to the culture and the context that he's he's preaching into. But just notice here, first of all, that his his basic method is, is unchanged. He preaches the gospel by explaining the Bible, just like he does everywhere else. And whether it's Jews in the synagogue or whether it's pagans in the marketplace, it's still the same old, unadulterated gospel message that he preaches day after day to whoever will listen. It's not rocket science, really, is it? God's method, friends, for people hearing the message of Jesus is that we tell them the message of Jesus. And that's what Jesus told us himself in, in, in chapter 1, verse 8. That's our mission. And it's actually what happens in pretty much every chapter of, of the book. And, you know, something that's quite striking about this passage is that Paul's motivation to preach the gospel here is not simply because he wants people to be converted. But actually, it's his, it's his horror, his, his disgust, his distress at the idolatry that he sees all around him, which is taking away from the worship of the one true God that he really wants to see. So he preaches the gospel to put that right, which is quite striking, isn't it? And and it made me wonder, friends, uh, do we get provoked in our spirits that Jesus is not honoured in our culture? Does it distress us that, that, as Romans 1 puts it, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie? That we worship created things rather than the, the creator? That does the ridiculous worship of statues that still goes on all over the place today, or, or the equally ridiculous idols of, of materialism, or pleasure-seeking, or beauty, or career, 
or whatever it is, does it bother us that the one true God is not worshipped as he should be by, by those around us? People have been made in his image, but who ignore him and would rather worship stuff that people have made with their own hands. Does that bother us? Do we have a kind of righteous jealousy for the name and the honour and the reputation of the true and the living God? As friends, Paul does here. I think we can learn from him about what our response should, should be. Uh, which, of course, is, is not to smash up the statues. He doesn't do that, does he? You know, so many people have done that through history in the name of religion, including Christians, sadly, as well. That's not what Paul does here, is it? Because he knows that the only thing that really destroys idols and, and reclaims the human heart for the worship of God is the transforming message of the gospel. That the, the message that... The message that a Galilean carpenter, who was also God in the flesh, was nailed on a Roman cross with all our idolatry on his shoulders until the full price of it had been paid for us with his death. Whereupon he was raised to new life so that we can be too. Friends, that doesn't sound very powerful, does it? But that's how idols are really smashed. And I think it's so helpful for us to remember that here because, as, as we've seen, we also live in a similar culture. A culture that is both kind of sophisticated and educated on the one hand, you know, it's into its rationalism and its science and so on, but it's also a culture deeply into pick-and-mix religion, isn't it? You know, a kind of so-called spirituality that, that, that borrows a, a little bit from here and a little bit from there to make up my kind of brand of God, God that suits me. And, and it can leave us kind of as, as Bible Christians feeling intimidated, feeling inadequate. How, how do we reach people in that kind of an environment? Well, this passage tells us you preach the gospel by explaining the Bible. You, you open up and explain the scriptures to people. You point them to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, there's, there's some value, of course, in doing a bit of apologetics, isn't there? We do it here sometimes, you know, helping to answer people's questions about science and faith or suffering and, and so on. But ultimately, friends, you can't debate anyone into the kingdom through, through discussions on philosophy or science or whatever it might be. It's only through the message of the gospel that people can be brought to saving faith in Jesus. And, and that's precisely what Paul is doing here in Athens, And we'll see him doing it all over again in the next city, Corinth, in the next one, uh, uh, Ephesus, and so on. Because that's the strategy, friends. <laughs> Whatever the culture, wherever the location, however foolish the message might seem to, to a, a society that considers itself to have moved beyond such primitive things, God will build his church as his people proclaim his message to whoever will listen. And so our task is just to do that, simply to do that. And friends, I think that gives us great confidence, doesn't it? You know, as we plan and pray towards a church plant, as, as Yerka and Kira church, church plant in the Czech Republic, because the growth and spread of the gospel, whether it's in, in Ventnor or whether it's in Ride or whether it's in Olomouc or wherever it is, it doesn't require a different strategy for a different setting. It doesn't. We're just to be faithful to the gospel message he's given us 
And so simply keep preaching the gospel by explaining the Bible. And, and keep doing it in our established churches and keep doing it in our church plants and keep doing it in our individual lives as, as God gives us the opportunity to do so. So that's, that's the first point, I think, for us to notice is Paul's faithful preaching. It's, it's a new place. It's a new culture. It's the same method. Preach the gospel by explaining the Bible. Having said that, I'd love us also to notice Paul's flexible preaching in, in verses 19 to, to 34. Because while he's, he's faithful with the gospel message, he is flexible in how he presents the gospel message. And that reflects the fact that he's carefully considering who he's speaking to. And, and uh, verse 19 tells us who he's speaking to here, which is to the, the Areopagus. So, so this, is the, uh, this, this is the ruling council of Athens. These are the people responsible for the religious and civil life of the city. And, and they're certainly the most kind of intellectual, sophisticated bunch of people that he'd addressed so far. They're, they're, notice verse 19, they're genuinely curious. They bring him to the Areopagus. Do you see that? May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know what these things mean. And I I think we can take them at their word uh, uh, at that point. In other words, this isn't a a kind of hostile inquisition. I think it's just an open inquiry. Broad-minded, intelligent people, well-educated, genuinely curious. Uh, The the, the philosophies that they were most into, uh, we're told in verse 18, are are Epicureanism and Stoicism. The Epicureans, they were the the materialists, really. You know, um, this life is all there is. When you're dead, you're dead. That that kind of thing. Um, Which meant that what they were into was pleasure. You know, you've only got one life. You might as well pack in as much fun as you can. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? Stoics, on the other hand, they were all about reason and logic, kind of ruling the emotions. So they were kind of stiff upper lip and discipline, that kind of thing. But also the Stoics were pantheists. So they believed that God was everywhere, you know, that everyone had had God inside them, uh, what we might call kind of uh, uh, nature worship or kind of new age thinking. It's also very familiar, isn't it? But, But I think the point is that both of these groups, they're intelligent, thinking people who already had their worldviews worked out. And they take Paul, and he's by himself, kind of up to the ruling council of a whole city where there's a, there's a stack of other people who are just as sophisticated, just as deep thinking, and they ask him to explain again this, this, this message that he's been preaching in the marketplaces. I think that's pretty intimidating. So what, what does he say? Look at verse uh, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He doesn't seem very intimidated, <laughs> does he? Um, and that, that's just the introduction. Um, yeah, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's polite to them, of course, but he's not on the back foot here, is he? He, he lets them know that he's noticed how religious they are, what, what a great load of deities they've got scattered around the city that they're worshipping, and that they've even got this altar to, to, to the unknown God, just in case they've kind of inadvertently missed one out. 
But he's not saying that to flatter them. He's not saying it to kind of massage their egos. He's saying it to expose their ignorance, which is why he focuses on their altar to the unknown God. He's effectively saying, you've got all these statues, all these philosophies that make you seem so so sophisticated, but the true God is unknown to you. You're ignorant of him. And the way to correct ignorance is to proclaim truth, so that's what I'm going to do to you now. Do you see? It's it's kind of... um, you know that expression, an iron fist in a velvet glove? <laughs> I think it's kind of like that. He's very politely, but, but ruthlessly, as it were, saying to them, I'll tell you about the one true God. I'll proclaim to you that knowledge of which you, for all your intelligence, are completely ignorant about. And he does. And, and, and notice that what he doesn't do is jump straight into explaining the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He, he did that with the Jews in the synagogue, didn't he? But he, he doesn't do that here. But actually, neither does he start where they are, you know, by talking about their gods or their philosophies, trying to find some common ground uh, between them. He, he doesn't do that either. What he does is tells them about the God of the scriptures and about their relationship to him as people. And he does so in such a way as to expose their ignorance and smash their idols. Uh, Look at verse 24, because firstly, he says that God is the creator, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So so to these Athenians, right, who, who believe that kind of God's sleeping with other gods, brought the universe into existence. But Paul says that the one true God, he's not been birthed by anyone. He's he's the creator of everything, though. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Which means that your temples, that you think are sacred spaces or holy places where you, you, you whisper when you go in and you bring in your little bits of food to place them on the altar, they're they're nothing of the sort. They're just monuments to your ignorance. Because the true God doesn't live in buildings. How can the God who made the universe be confined to a kind of a stone house? It's absurd. No, we don't build homes for God to live in. He's built the home for us to live in. He's the creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And and friends, just, just as a little aside here, we need to make sure that as Christians... We don't prop up that false view of God by thinking of our church buildings in the wrong way. As as though they were holy spaces, you know, where only certain activities are appropriate. Because as Paul knows, the only building that God has ever said he dwelled in was the temple in Jerusalem. And that was under the old covenant, the, the temple that God himself designed. And under the new covenant, even that's abandoned as he now dwells in in heaven and and dwells in our hearts by faith. And so if Paul reckons that the Athenians ought to know better, I reckon we as Christians should know better as well, shouldn't we? Secondly, verse 25, he says that God is the sustainer, look. Um, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, so the, the, the Greeks, of course, they spent a lot of their time serving the gods, didn't they? Kind of appeasing their wrath 
you know, with their little plates of food to keep them happy and so on. But Paul says, no, you've got that wrong too. You're running around as though the gods needed you, whereas the true God doesn't need anyone. He's God. He doesn't need your little plates of food. Indeed, it's us that need him for every breath that we take. He's the sustainer of all things. Uh, Thirdly, look, he's the ruler, verses uh, 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. In other words, since God created everything and God sustains everything, then it's God who determines the course of human history. He's the one who rules over our lives. And and contrary to what the Epicureans believed, he's not far from us. He's near. He's he's involved in our world. The evidence for him is, is all around us in the world so that he can be found. You see? And then fourthly, look, verse 28, God is our father. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And the point he's making there is not that God is, um, is, the, is, our hev- is the heavenly father to those who are his children. In other words, Christians. That's true, <laughs> of course, that's true. But that's not the point he's making here. The point he's making here is that God, in a more general sense, is the, the father of humanity, the father of mankind. And we are, therefore, as humans, totally dependent upon him. So, friends, do, do you see what he's doing here? The relationship between God and man that he's trying to establish here is one of creator to creature, one of ruler to subject, one of father to children. God made us, God owns us, God sustains us. We're completely dependent upon him and so we owe him our worship, our honour, our allegiance. And you see what he's doing? He's preaching the God of the Bible, isn't he? And in doing that, he is verbally smashing their idols. He's exposing their, their so-called uh, sophisticated, intelligent philosophy and, and, and religion for the ignorance about God that it actually is. But you'll see he's not finished. <laughs> Uh, Because having spoken about who God is and who they are in relation to him, he now shows them their accountability before God. Have a look at verse uh, 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, if, if we people, you know, people made in the image of God... If we're his offspring, if we can think and feel and relate and and so on, how can we possibly think that the divine being, our creator, in whose image we are made, could be a statue? You know, something made of gold or silver or stone, something man-made. It's preposterous, isn't it? And friends, his aim here in saying this is not to make sophisticated people look stupid, (laughs) But rather, he's, he's showing them that to worship idols instead of the one true God is a sin from which they need to repent. Verse 30, look. 
The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And and by overlooked, there he doesn't mean God's ignored it. He just means that God hasn't judged the world for it yet. But judgment is coming. God's response to man's rejection of him by worshipping idols instead, that's been revealed. And it's been revealed in Jesus Christ, look, verse 31. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you see what he's done? Again, we've only got the the outline of the sermon here, but it's, it's clear enough, isn't it? He's begun with who God is, creator, sustainer, ruler, and who we are in relation to him, his creatures made in his image under his rule. He's talked about our rejection of him by worshipping false gods instead. And he's talked about our accountability before him. And so our need to repent, turn around, turn back to him. And then he's finished up by talking about the death and resurrection and returning as judge of the Lord Jesus. And friends, what I'd love us to see here is that when Paul is asked to give an account of his message in the sophisticated, intelligent, highbrow, intimidating environment that he's in. He doesn't get technical with the apologetics. He just preaches the gospel. Now, for sure, he starts further back than than when he was preaching in the synagogue. He goes back to creation. He starts by describing the God of the Bible and our relationship to him. But friends, his message is still the gospel, isn't it? He just lays it out step by step, like, like those two ways to live leaflets that we've got in the leaflet rack, you know? He's just doing that. And and it has the effect of smashing their idols, exposing the the stupidity of their so-called sophisticated religions and philosophies. And friends, I I think that's incredibly helpful, isn't it? Because, you know, we we can tend to think, can't we, that with a sophisticated audience, 21st century European audience, you know, we need somebody like John Lennox, (laughs) you know, who's great, by the way. You know, but, but we can kind of feel we, we need to bring in the, the big guns. You know, we need to bring in the, the Christian intelligentsia, as it were, to marshal all the sophisticated arguments for the existence of God or, or whatever. That's not what Paul does, is it? All Paul is doing is laying out the gospel. He's saying, since you didn't get it the first time when I preached it to you in the marketplace, let me lay it out for you again. Now, what he is doing, of course, is he showing some understanding of their worldview? He, he quotes back to them, you'll see in verse 28, one of their own poets, for example. But friends, that's just speaking to them as people, isn't it? That's just seeking to engage their, their hearts, their minds, their, their worldviews with the scriptures. So, so sure, he uses different starting points, different cultural illustrations and so on to make sure that he's understood, make sure he connects. But his method and his message, they, they, they're just the same. And friends, it's no different for us today. We are to be faithful in preaching the gospel message that we've been given. Preaching Christ from all the scriptures. But we're free, we're encouraged to be flexible with how we present that message in order to make it understood by those we're we're seeking to reach. 
Here's the confidence, friends. In any place, in any culture, at any time in history, including ours, this is our task. We proclaim the gospel by explaining the Bible. And friends, just as we close, can I draw your attention to the results? The results of Paul's preaching, can you see them? Uh, In verse 32 there. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, "Hmm, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So again, it's a mixed reaction, isn't it? Some mocked and kind of rejected the message. Others said, you know, let, let's, let's hear you again. Let's, you know, let's get together. You can tell me some more. And there were others too, though, who believed and joined that little fledgling church plant. And notice that they've responded this way, not to an intellectual debate, but simply to a presentation of the gospel message. As Paul preached the gospel by explaining the Bible, their ignorance has been exposed, their idols have been smashed, and they've put their trust in the one true and living God. And friend, if you're here this morning, and maybe you haven't yet done that, could it be that you too, like millions across the world before you, are now ready to respond to the command of the one true God. There it is in verse 30. The God who commands you to repent of your rejection of him and your worship of other things instead and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save you from the judgment of that same Lord Jesus that is surely coming. Could I urge you to do that without delay, if you haven't done so already? And if you'd like to find out a bit more about how, I'd love to have a chat with you about that as well. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you so much for um, for showing us the confidence that we can have as your people to, to simply preach the gospel by explaining the Bible. Um, in, in faithfulness to the scriptures, and yet with flexibility in how we do that. Thank you for the, 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 the assurance that it will result in people responding in trust to the Lord Jesus. And, and so in churches being planted out towards the ends of the earth. Father, please would you give us that confidence as we proclaim it here and as we seek to take it out from here to, to other island communities. And Father, thank you too for showing us that you are the creator and the sustainer and the ruler of the whole universe. You're the one who's made each of us in your image to live under your loving rule as your child. And so, Father, if there are any of us here who have not yet become worshippers of you through your son, the Lord Jesus, but are worshippers of other things instead. Father, please turn our hearts to you. Please come into us and change us that we may live now with Jesus as our rescuer and our ruler. All of this we pray in his name.